Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Sound of the Loons presented by Alina Health. What a fabulous day. The sun is shining. I'm assuming the teams are training outside. That's always a good sign. It's like we had spring and then winter and spring again. And I get to be joined joined by the head coach of the U19, the under-19 academy team, Fernando Adi. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me. I should say, I mean, I guess I should preface your your resume. You're you're currently the head coach of the U19s, but when we talk about where you've come from and what you've accomplished in your career, uh, we could go back a long ways in sort of the stellar nature of your path and what you've been able to accomplish. But first and foremost, just tell me um, the draw, the draw for you to come back to Minnesota United as a coach and the draw just to get in coaching in general, considering your fantastic career as a player. Uh, thanks for having me again. Um, you know, um, as a soccer player, I always, uh, wanted to, uh, I mean, remain in soccer afterwards and, um, you know, um, I give you the good thought of uh, what am I going to do after my career and, you know, just having think, uh, thought about it, thought, I mean, spent time thinking about these, um, last three years, obviously, you know, when your career is slowly winding up, you start you know within yourself that, oh, yeah, the time is coming and you have to start thinking about something else. So when that time came, you know, I was thinking about different things, speaking to uh, Sean McCauley, who is my mentor, uh, you know, and speaking to Kelly, speaking to my friends, just people around me who are in the league just to hear how they navigated their, um, their retirement situation and how they became sort of going into coaching and all of that. So, you know, uh, these guys were very helpful, especially Sean. Sean was uh, super helpful uh, because I called him like a lot just to get insight on, um, you know, how to go about life and things like this. So um, it didn't come as a surprise to me because um, even while playing, I um, I was more like a leader on any team I played. I was uh, very vocal in the locker room, just trying to uh, bring people along and together. So... I think uh, that gave me um, the insight in going into coaching. And um, luckily enough for me, um, you know, uh, Minnesota gave me a good opportunity. Um, Adrian was very helpful in uh, giving me the opportunity to come here on an uh, internship with the camp. So that was uh, really, really helpful. And, you know, uh, learned a lot from Ken, learned a lot from Sean, and just, you know, going about asking, uh, even I walk around, I ask many questions, I ask Amos Miggy questions. So I just try to get, as much ideas from everybody, you know, who has been in soccer longer than I've been and, you know, just getting that insight about how it works and all of this uh, really helped me. But, you know, uh, Minnesota was just great in uh, giving me the opportunity. When you look at your career, did you think that this was where you're going to end up? You just said towards the tail end of your career, you know, you were a leader on the field, you're trying to bring guys along. And there are some people that just have that kind of a brain, sort of a a coaching brain, a coach on the field. Not everybody is meant to be a coach. You know, so so even early on in your career, in your youth days, was that sort of how you operated? Did you see yourself in that way on the pitch? I think I would say when, <laughs> when I was a lot younger, I was a little bit different because uh, I wanted the ball all the time. So, <laughs> um, you know, I just had Zarek in training the other day with my uh, U19s and uh, he was telling them a story about Fernando Adi, that Fernando Adi was younger. He was telling them how if you don't pass Fernando Adi the ball in training, you are in trouble with Fernando Adi. <laughs> so... That's that's the negative, right? You have a former teammate from the Portland Timbers now on Minnesota United that can spill yeah. all the beans and give all the dirt, right? Yeah, exactly. So he was telling them that, oh, you have a really good coach and stuff like this, how Fernando was very aggressive. If I don't cross the ball with Fernando Adi, it would be a whole problem. So everyone just had to give Fernando Adi the balls. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was... Uh, that was why I was able to score goals because I, I needed the ball. But, um, you know, in all honesty, um, growing up, I've always uh, wanted to remain in soccer. And uh, was the tail end of my career. I started seeing myself more vocal, more getting into, even after games, I want to ask the coach, like, when the coach makes a change, I'll go on just me and the coach. I say, why did you make that change? Uh, because maybe I'm seeing something different as a player. And I was lucky enough where coaches kind of explained to me like, yeah, this is the reason behind this change. So, you know, um, I kind of grew up into it. And um, I say it's uh, for me, it's just a pleasure to be here for sure. 
Can you go way back and talk to us about your upbringing a little bit, born in Nigeria? Like, what was your upbringing like and what was that soccer culture like for you and in within your family and your community? I, I, I would say my upbringing was uh, pretty normal, uh, very traditional. You know, uh, in Africa, especially in Nigeria, we uh, we very like parents are very hard on uh, kids. You know, you have to do the right things all the time. But uh, I would say I was a little bit of a strong head, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> I remember my parents punishing me a lot because, you know, <laughs> whenever they send me on errand, I don't go. I just go playing soccer. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I schooled back in Nigeria, did my high school there and was able to also to come out with a, a computer science degree from Nigeria. So um, my upbringing, I grew up in a very uh, modest family. Um, my uh, football career path is very strange, but I would say uh, favored. And I was kind of lucky because... Obviously, I played with uh, very, very talented players who, even while growing, I knew these guys were way better than me. But, you know, and I think just what set me apart from them was discipline because I, I really, really wanted it. Um, I wanted to excel. I wanted to play soccer. So um, about nine, 12 years old, I started like really, really like going into soccer. And, uh, you know, after I played I represented my school in soccer as they uh, we call them uh, the leader of the games in uh, in our high school. So I was the leader of games in my school. And um, immediately graduating from high school, I had an opportunity with um, with an agent who came into Nigeria from uh, UK, and uh, he was running a tryout uh, in Lagos, a big city. So I had to travel all the way and. Uh, there was nowhere I could travel because I was super young and I lived with my sister my uh, and my mom. And so I didn't know what to do. So I had to connect with my sister. Hey, I've got this trial, but if my parents know that I'm going for a soccer trial, they would say, no, you can, that's not even possible. I was even too young. So uh, I told my sister, we sat that we made a plan. So we kind of lied to my parents that um, <laughs> I was going to go back uh, back to the village to see my grandmother. And uh, we told my parents that, yeah, I'm going back to visit my grandmother. And the next day, just me and my sister knew what was happening. So I had to travel all the way from uh, Benway uh, to Lagos. And um, luckily enough for me, you know, I, that's why I say my career was really, really like favored in a sense, because on getting to Lagos, they told us the trial was meant to be 60 kids. But on getting there, a boy from the village coming to the big city, I saw over 400 boys and they were looking for just 10 players. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they uh, I slept in the guy that came from uh, UK, uh, an English guy, uh, Nigerian parents and all of that, but uh, born there and lived there and all, all his business there. So the next morning we went to the field. I was very nervous and all of that, but, you know, um, I just say, okay, I just got to do what I got to do. And, you know, my cleats were not the right cleats. I was shabbily dressed and all of this, but on getting on the field, uh, I just played 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, uh, he said I should come out. And he asked me, why do I miss the chance? I said, I don't know, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So to call a long story short, you know, after the try, I was one among the, uh, he just selected five players and I, I was one among the five. So... Uh, from then, my career, you know, I stayed in Lagos for another six months. Then my parents had to knew, know that I lied to them and all of those things. And... <laughs> Wait, it took six months for that to come to fruition? <laughs> yeah. So I had to go back home, but then uh, I had to leave. So when I got back home, I told them the truth and they were like, oh, no, you can go and stuff like this. And yeah, long story short, I ended up going to Slovakia. Uh, I went to Slovakia at 16, uh, almost 17. I spent a year in um, in their youth uh, academies there and then uh, mid I turned 18 that's when I went into the first team but uh, my career path went from Slovakia to uh, to Ukraine to Denmark and then to the United States but it was a it was a journey for sure it was uh, I remember when I started in Slovakia I could say in the entire city I was um, I was the only um, uh, foreigner in that in that city it was a city of about 60 70,000 people distrenching. And uh, I remember even just walking on the street, everybody's like turning and looking at, look at you like you're something different, you know, but this was in early 2009, 2010. So people were not used to different people. And uh, that was the difference. But, you know, the career has been uh, steadily progressing. And, you know, I'm just happy to where uh, the level I've come to. 
when you came to the United States with the Portland Timbers, then what was that like for you? Because did you feel a little more well-prepared for it? Because you had already traveled all these places. You had all these experiences as a young player and a young person, forget just being a, you know, a player. Did you feel like coming over to the United States that you were ready for this? This was a moment for you. Did you want that move? That Because it was originally a loan, yes, with the Portland Timbers? Yes, it was... Um... I wasn't looking for the move because I was uh, in Copenhagen uh, playing Champions League, you know, having played against Real Madrid. And, you know, that's a big change. Obviously, I know I knew about MLS soccer, but I've never watched an MLS game. So um, when uh, Portland Timbers came for me with uh, loan and stuff like that, you know, I spoke to the club. They were like, yeah, you know, we'll let you make decisions. So I had to just speak to people around me and you know it was a it was a, a loan for six months but then it was an opportunity for me to also to play and to see the country as well also knowing that um i speak english so that was a big relief my on my path knowing <laughs> that i could speak english with other people so they could understand me so um you know when i uh, came here um just being around was a lot easier obviously people speak english i can go to a restaurant on my own i can walk around i can see people like me so that was a huge difference maker for me. And I think after uh, three weeks, uh, Portland uh, Timber said that they want to sign me. And if I was willing and stuff, like I had no option than to say yes. So it was um, it was a big change, but uh, a change that brought me into the, uh, the right direction. So how much time did you get to spend with your family or back with your family throughout this entire journey since you very first left Nigeria and you left to go to Slovakia? How much time... Have you been able to still be a part of what they have going on or them being a part of what you have going on? How easy or difficult has that been? I think is uh, the world right now is a very small village. I would say when you talk about early 2000 or 2010, there it was a little bit difficult. Like um, in Slovakia, then even if you're going to make a, a FaceTime course, like you got to go to a specific location to do all of that. So um, I think when I came here, it was around 2014. So the world has really, really moved on in technology. So the idea of uh, FaceTiming, video, WhatsApp chatting, and all of this uh, became a norm even in Africa. So even if our parents didn't or my sister didn't have the money, I could send them money like, okay, buy data and have it on your phone, or I could buy a phone and send it to her, you know, just to call me once in a while. But the good thing with me is um, all the way from Slovakia, when I started, the clubs has been really, really helpful because they know I was young, coming from a different place. So they what was inserted in my contract was the ability for, for them to sponsor me to go back home at least twice a year. So they gave me that option, which was very, very uh, helpful. So I had to I had the ability to go back if I want twice a year, or, but most of I was going back once a year. But I think uh, technology made life a lot easier Um you know, it's different coming from Africa and having that mentality of, um, you know, coming from a very poor background, seeing that people are suffering and then you have it in your head like, hey, this is my opportunity to make it. So that, you know, that energizes you, that gives you that a uh, little bit of a spark, a bite that yeah, I got to make it. I got to make it for my people. I got to make it for myself. So um, I think having that at the back of my head, you know, just uh, gave me the extra uh, push I needed in that times. Have you been able to carry that mentality and some of those life lessons that you've learned as as a human being and as a as a soccer player to what you do now? I mean, even with the U19s, but even going back during your playing career and you spent time, you know, a long time with Portland Timbers and um, had a lot of success at MLS Cup and Columbus Crew and Cincinnati. You know, what what has been? Have you been able to carry those lessons? to some of the players in and around you, and especially with the 19s, because, you know, not everybody in the United States has it easy, but not necessarily the same type of a path that you took. So how do you instill some of those values? I think, uh, you know, when I, uh, Amos uh, let me know that, yeah, they're willing to give me the job. I was really happy because I told him before, uh, during the interviews that, I have something to offer those kids that I don't think anybody has. And that is not being, being um, proud or uh, being, yeah, being proud about it. But the truth is I came from a very different background and I see how we fought to survive, how we wanted to make it in, uh, in this life. And I think that's a specialty I have that a lot of people don't have. And that experience of traveling around the globe, I, the other day I, I told my group that, um, 
at 21, I was playing Champions League. They were looking at me and like, really? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> so at <laughs> 21, 22, I was playing Champions League. So they were like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, I did. But, you know, so that gives them extra motivation. And I tell them that um, it's not just uh, coming here, kicking the ball. It involves a lot of things. You know, the discipline has to be there. Your um, desire, I want to I want to play soccer. You have to love the game, you know, not just looking at the fame, the money, and the things, the extra things it brings. Definitely, it's going to bring all of those things. And with those things also comes a lot of pressure, pressure to perform, pressure to, you know, ho- hold yourself at a high standard. Not that we're not going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes, but just the ability to, you know, within yourself, say, um, I love this game. I want to make it. I'm going to do everything I can within my uh, power to excel in, in this career. You know, it's what is going to set you apart from uh, from the next player. And um, the the 19, really, we have a lot of good players. Um, I think I've, I've, I've pushed and pushed and pushed, but um, I, I tell Cam most of the time when I speak with him about the boys, I recommend boys to come train with him. And luckily for me, you know, he accepts that and he's willing to see them play and um I was extremely emotionally overjoyed when I saw a cage and Leo go to play with the first team and Leo came out as the best player for the first week and I was uh I think Amos was texting me in the middle of the night and he was like oh how do your boys did so well and I just sent him a text but I'm not surprised you know he might see that like um maybe a little bit strong statement, but I, I said, I'm not surprised because I know how far those boys have been working, how well they have been working, the desire they want to make it. So, and this is what I told them, like, it's not just being in the U19 now, you have the ability, if, if you do well in the U19, you know, I can recommend you and can go there and play well and the, the whole country sees uh, those players. And, you know, that's what we want to see. We want to see the boys progress and not just be at the level where they are with the 19s, but even if they end up going to college, they are good representative of Minnesota. And that's what Minnesota stands for, to be better, even when you are not within the club uh, system. Well, that's a good point because 19s is a tricky age. And you, you know this because you played and were playing professional at a much younger age, but the United States has such a different path in general with college. And of course we have MLS next pro and, you know, the twos in these academies now, which are fantastic, but the 19s are kind of this tricky age. So how do you still instill this belief in them that um, there's this opportunity to, you know, clearly go on professionally, but if you maybe go and, and decide to play college, that's okay too. And then you may still end up, you get drafted, whatever it might be, that your path doesn't have to be linear. Like if you go on this one path and it takes a turn somewhere along the way, it's okay. Like you'll still end up where you need to be at the end of the day, you know, how, how do you do that with that age group? The, the, the truth about the whole thing is, um, you know, and this is me saying the truth, I'm not very used to the academy system. You know, I've never been in the system and how it works here. So when I got into the system and luckily for me, um, I did work with a uh, no uh, queen a little bit. Yes. So, and no has been really, really helpful because sometimes I go to him like, no, I don't want to talk to no parents. Like, just go talk to the parents, you know, <laughs> So <laughs> because I don't know what to tell them. And uh, luckily for me, you know, Amos also did a good job with uh, bringing in Alex, who has been in the college system for over 20 years. So, you know, no has been just tremendous with helping me with like, hey, uh, this player, this is just how you deal with him. And I go into the office, I just knock on his door like, hey, this player is having this. I don't know what to tell him. And he's just there, you know, and... So I'm so happy that I have all these people around me to just help me navigate the situation. Uh, you know, uh, so no has been tremendously helpful with just talking to the boys, like when we travel and, you know, sometimes I don't even know what to say because I'm thinking more at the higher level where, you know, the coach is like, you are there as a player, I'm there as a coach. And, you know, you come and you do what you have to do as a player and we go back home. But, you know, in the academy level, it's different. Uh, you have to be there emotionally for the kids. Uh, physically and otherwise, you know, so you're acting like not just as a coach, you're acting like a, a almost like a parent to these kids when they are in the uh, environment here. So I would say no has just been very, very helpful in this area. And Alex now comes in to give me like so much uh, ideas, you know, um, even when we're playing the game and I'm seeing something and he's also seeing something and he comes to me and say, this is what I'm seeing. And, you know, we just, relate ideas and things work out. But I, I would say no has been very tremendous in helping with this other aspect that I'm not very familiar with. So what's your what's your strongest 
attribute as a coach? Yeah, I know you can tell me what your strongest attribute is as a player. What's your strongest attribute? What's your style? What's your philosophy as a coach? Yeah, my my philosophy is uh, you have to work hard to uh, gain whatever you want to get, you know, the results. Uh, and especially at the youth level, I mean, I've not been here for so long, but from what I see is when those boys are fit, when they, you just have to give them the basic uh, principles and ideas and concepts of play, how you want them to play. And you don't complicate it because when you complicate it, then you just make everything confusing for them. And and I've learned that you just stick to something when it's working, you know, don't just deviate from it because maybe you lost the game. Like we lost 2-1 against um, uh, Galaga last uh, Saturday mm. and oh, Sunday. And this was a game, uh, obviously tough uh, conditions and all of that, but we all played on the same page. But we kept over 75% of the ball. And uh, we created so many chances, you know, um, obviously due to conditions we can't control the ball. Someone is running with the ball and suddenly the ball gets sticks, uh, stuck in the snow and things like this. And um, so when I see that we kept the ball for over 75% and we created so many chances, some came off, some didn't come off the right way. But, you know, the basic idea of, okay, I say we're going to play, we're going to, they got the, uh, Galaga stays narrow. We have to now spread out, just keep the ball on one angle. And when we switch, we have to now press, uh, go quickly on the side where we switch. And we saw exactly those concepts on the video afterwards when we watched the uh, video. And Alex was even telling me yesterday that we did everything right. You know, it's just, and you know, so when you go through that kind of game, you know, the boys were very disappointed. This is a game they should win, but we give a penalty in the last minute. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our, my philosophy, our philosophy of uh, of the club is we are going by what Adrian is doing with the first team and second team, which is uh, basically stay within the 4-3-3, you know, stay narrow, stay compact through the middle. And then when we have the ball, we spread out, we try to use the wing uh, wide to uh, get the balls in the box. But I think um, also with them going to train and play with the second team, a few of them now, they know that this is what we're trying to do. Uh, we're not trying to complicate it. We're trying to make it as simple as possible, play from the back. Um, wingers stay wide, invert when you have to invert, but mostly open up the pitch. So now when you have an opportunity to watch the first team, pay attention to what's going on in this league, because I know you're incredibly busy with what you have going on, but clearly it's sort of all interconnected. It's a domino effect. Two questions. First one is, what's your thought and feel and opinion on the growth of this league just since you arrived and where it's at now? And then also... You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit, you know, get your scouting report on Minnesota United Seattle coming this weekend because you had your fair share of games against Seattle and, and sort of what that's like and, um, you know, what that environment's like, what that competition is like and and just your overall thoughts on on the, the MLS and, and how it's evolved. I think uh, MLS has grown a lot. I mean, uh, from 2014 to now, the uh, the amount of players have, that have been able to come into the league has just been impressive. Uh, the teams that have been able to, the new expansions have been impressive. Look at what uh, St. Louis is doing. That is just incredible. You know, look at what LAFC did, look at what Atlanta did. So, you know, the league has grown so much that you can say we are the um, uh, the older generation league or whatever, the league for the mm -hmm. older people. Now it's a league for young people. You know, every, every team has... Uh, players that can go to Europe and play in anything. We have players in MLS that can go anywhere and play in any of the leagues in the world. So I think, and also looking at the number of, I think about, was it 32 players in the world, in the last World Cup or something like this? This it is crazy, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is impressive statistics for the league. And, you know, the league is just going to keep growing and I say it's going to explode, you know, just the World Cup is coming here and, you know, so there's a lot that um, MLS is going to is going to achieve in the nearest future, I think. I think more teams are going to come. The league is going to keep getting better. Better players are still going to be coming in. And players are going to come in at their prime. Not like, you know. Those... It's not a retirement league anymore. Yeah, no, no more retirement yeah. league. Yeah. Now, if you come and you are not fit, you are not doing the right things, you can play. You know, uh, look at Pilo came and he can't last for so long <laughs> because the league is not that easy. It's not that he easy. He did have really nice hair, though. <laughs> the league the league for sure is a top league you know it's not it's not an easy league 
but going back to uh, Seattle, all I can tell you, Seattle, is that those people hate me. They hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I went with, the, you know, when I did internship, we came for a little bit. Uh, we traveled <laughs> to Seattle for a um, second team game with, uh, with the Seattle uh, Tacoma or whatever. Yeah, second yes, team. Yes, yes. And the people were booing me. I'm like, wait, you guys are booing. I'm no longer a player. <laughs> so <laughs> they were booing me. But uh, I mean, Seattle Seattle has always been a good team. You, you have to give them that. You know, they've been a successful team in the last uh, five years. Um, but um, uh, one thing with them is, you know, if you go there and as long as you can stick in the game, uh, don't concede early, you are good to go. Um, the most important thing playing in Seattle is don't concede early because... I think when you consider it, then it becomes a problem because, uh, you know, they've had a, a good fan base that follows them and try to support them, especially at home. And and knowing that they just lost to uh, my former team, Portland team. They didn't just lose. They got smoked. Oh, they so got it might smoked. Not be a, it might not be a good time to be facing Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> they got, they got, they got trounced, man. They got smoked, like, for real. Yes. But uh, so, you know. I don't know, but um, it's a game that we just, uh, I think we just need to go there and uh, stick in and just try to stick into the game until we get a goal. And uh, I think the longer we stick in the game, the better chance we have. Uh, and we just, we just, we try not to concede early. That's, uh, that's very important. Well, I know Adrian Heath has always said, you know, when he's talked about his coaching career after his playing career, and he always felt like coaching is the next best thing to playing. It's the closest you can really get to the game without being on the pitch as a player. And I, it even looks like Adrian sometimes get, tries to get on the field <laughs> as a player on that, on that sideline, you know, but do you, do, would you agree? I mean, is this like, you know, are you content and happy with where you're at and you feel at this moment fulfilled with, with what you're doing and that coaching is the next best thing to playing? I, absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, I I always uh, I think I've told a few of them this, but I say the best feeling I get right now as a coach is when I implement an idea in training and I see the execution in the in the game. That brings me absolute joy. And I think we've scored some goals that I really really celebrate. And my boys are looking at me like, oh my gosh, he celebrates. <laughs> but I'm like, so I explained to them that the reason why I'm celebrating this goal more than that goal, the other goal is because. We did exactly that. We thought about this in training. We tried to implement it in training. And now it's, we executed it perfectly in the game. And when you see that, it gives you a lot of joy. So I definitely understand what he's talking about. And uh, it's, it's just a good feeling, especially if you love the game and you want to see um, at our youth level, we want to see the boys progress and become something uh, bigger in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I tell people all the time, and we've, if we've been really lucky to do these podcasts every week and try to focus on the academies, the twos, because I just think that the evolution of this league with the academies in Minnesota now just sort of getting into that game. Some of these teams in these clubs like Portland have been doing it for a long time. But I think that for people to get out and witness what you guys are doing at the academy level and the twos level is so important because we can all talk about the pros. We can all talk about the first team. But I think to really see kids their age, what they can aspire to at the next level and that whole concept, if you, if you can see it, you can be it the U15s, the 17s, 19s, and then it's the, you know, the twos and the second and the first team. Like, I just think that it's, it's such a joy to watch the progression of these players and, and hear their stories. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. And we could talk for another half hour um, just about your career. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today and I'll let you get back to work and hopefully you guys are training outside. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. And, and anytime, you know, I'm I'm willing and ready to uh, talk about the uh, the academy boys. Uh, I think the 19s, especially, they are really really good kids. Um, you know, when we play games, I just sometimes I ask them, "Where are your parents? Why are they not here? Where's your sister? Where's your brother? Invite them to come and watch the game to see how good you're doing." Because you know that also we give them motivation. So this is me calling them as a coach. You know, like um, when we're playing games and we're at home and it's nearby, you know, just come out and support your. Uh, support your uh, the homeboys they are they are doing really good and they look really really good now so it would be a good time to come watch them and even you know put a pressure on the second team put a pressure on the team that hey these kids are doing well they have to be involved they should be involved so um but it's a pleasure to uh, be with you thanks a lot i love it thank you so much appreciate it stay tuned everybody we got segment number two coming up alexi lawless is going to join me to talk a little bit about u.s open cup coming up and just the overall state of the league and the men's national team that's coming up next
As the official healthcare provider of Minnesota United, Alina Health is focused on keeping our loons in top condition. And with expertise in orthopedics, sports medicine, heart care, and more, Alina has the team to keep your family in the game too. The experts at Alina Health take the time to get to know you as a whole person, helping you achieve wellness for your mind, body, and spirit. It's an altogether better kind of healthcare. Learn more at alinahealth.org. All right, welcome back, everybody. Segment number two of Sound of the Loons. And now we get to transition a little bit into, we were just talking about Seattle coming up for Minnesota United, but we're going to transition even beyond that to the U.S. Open Cup. And I get to have the pleasure of the one and only Alexi Lawless joining me. I don't have quite the introduction that you have for Mossy on your podcast. I don't know, maybe I should have done better with that. No, it was perfect. I loved it. I always love speaking with you. I love uh, the work that you do. We've known each other for uh, for many years, and I'm excited to talk about this this Loons team that's really kind of interesting here in, uh, in 2023 with what's going on on the field and off the field, and obviously as it relates to the, uh, the games coming up. So not yeah. a problem. Fire away. Yeah, you know, no shortage of um, conversation around this Minnesota United team. And I don't think anybody thought, and we won't, we don't need to like spend the whole time on it, but I don't think anybody thought the conversation would be about Emmanuel Reynoso not being here. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we thought that that going into the season, even from my standpoint now that I don't work directly with the club, but that that was going to be a real thing. But um, what is your take on the 2023 Minnesota United team? It's you know, they started off red hot. They've hit a little blip and a little bump in the road here. But overall, I know it's still early. I mean, look, uh, it's it's l- lemonade out of lemons, right? And so what Adrian Heath has done, I think, deserves a tremendous amount of attention and praise because, you know, while it's, you know, a team is a collection of individuals, the reality is when you have not just a designated player, but, a you know, use whatever word, talisman or, um, and certainly a star, not show up <laughs> and all of that entails, uh, you know, that's, that's a problem that, that throws you uh, for a loop. If you're a head coach, if you're a team that is planning for the year. And yet, like I said, they have, you know, they, they, they haven't whined about it. They've been, you know, as honest and open as they possibly can. But a lot of us on the outside are still kind of sitting around scratching our heads going, this is kind of strange, but they've gotten on with the business. And, you know, the uh, the depth, I think, has come, in, come into play. And also, I think there's a there's been kind of a rallying. And it's not anything against Reynoso or anything. I think everybody on the team understands how important he is. But, you know, from playing in teams, sometimes that you know, that ego and that hubris that you have can be channeled and harnessed in a good way. And I think that's what we have seen. Now, I don't think that Minnesota is necessarily elite, but they're they're hanging around and they're hanging around in a good place. And, you know, if and when he comes back or they decide to go in a different direction, it'll only make them that much better that they have kind of gone through this difficult and strange period and still for now, come out the other side, being a team that is more competitive than I think you or I would have, or a lot of people would have looked at it in the beginning of the season, if, if if you just said they don't have this player, a lot of people said, well, that is a big, big loss and one that is going to affect them from a standings perspective and a performance perspective. And it really hasn't. Yeah. And I think they're fortunate in the sense that they have a ton of depth in the midfield, which is a bonus. We all know that there isn't a quote, like for like substitution for Amanda Reynoso, but they've been able to accomplish a lot of things without him, whether it's been Robin Lud playing there or tucking other guys inside or playing with two forwards or whatever it might be. Uh, but I do think that you you hit it on the head. And I remember trying to ask, I think it was Michael Boxall a couple of weeks ago, like, did this sort of galvanize the group? Did it bring everybody together knowing that every question for the first how many ever months was about him and how are you going to move on with how, how do you do this? How do you do this? He's had this many touches on the ball, this many successful passes, key passes, whatever it might be. But the 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 players and the coaching staff have just said, sort of said, this is we got to go with what we got. And it's more galvanized the group. And you can probably understand that as a former player. Yeah, I, I you know, if I, I try to put myself in that locker room and I would, you know, it, it would ruffle my feathers a little bit to constantly have to talk yes. to them. I'd understand why, but that would manifest then on the field and saying, well, screw you. We're we're not all about one player. And as a matter of fact, we can, and, and again, I don't know the dynamics behind the scenes, but in a certain way, whatever's going on, he he's abandoned the team and left them hanging here in the lurch here. 
And that that for you know, and there could be legitimate. I I've no again, I don't know what's going on, but and if there's legitimate reasons, fine. But still, the the best laid plans, right? Kind of just blew up there. And I I think you know, I think the coaching staff and I think the players deserve a tremendous amount of credit for for hanging around and being a team. Again, not an elite team, but you know, listen, we we watched El Trafico this weekend, and the Galaxy right now would kill or die just to have you know uh, a, a a gritty raw type of performance that gets them points that gets them a win and it doesn't have to be beautiful when it comes to the loons and i'm not saying they have played completely ugly soccer but they recognize that this is a season where you know they're gonna have to grind and that's okay they're they're good with that there's a matter of fact they're very very good at, do, at doing that and you know the sexiness will be there at different times and who knows the sexiest may, may come in later on but for now just just hanging around and grinding through these games i think that that is a it's a good look for them, and I think it will ultimately serve them well for a base going forward. Well, and, and speaking of that base, I mean, and this grind, this is going to be a long season. This is a lot of games. And every season, I feel like we say that. But when you throw in the League Cup there in the middle of it, and then, of course, we have the U.S. Open Cup, which we're going to hit on here, is the depth and the grind is going to be a real thing for every club, especially if you're missing your number 10. Now, there's other teams that have suffered season-ending injuries already to keep players mm-hmm. That you know they don't, they're not going to have any sympathy. They're not taking out the the little violin, and you know they're not feeling bad for anybody at this point. And that's kind of the nature of the beast with this league. But when you look at Minnesota United, they have a, you know Seattle on the road this weekend. They've come off back to back losses, but then next weekend, next week you start U.S. Open Cup play already, which is just a different animal in balancing the roster and the schedule, much like CCL games midweek, but different in the U.S. Open Cup. When you look at what U.S. Open Cup has done for this league, how do you view the the competition and the the way it's structured still? What do you view U.S. Open Cup means to MLS? Well, well, first off, it's a piece of history. It's a piece of American soccer history. And this has nothing to do with MLS. This is all of that soccer history. And I know, you know, we have our soccer wars and we fight amongst ourselves at different times. But the reality is that there is a long and incredibly robust American soccer history. If you care to actually go back and research it um, and know about it. And it's and it's incredibly, like I said, interesting and entertaining. Um, And this is part of that history. And, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't get the attention, I think, that it deserves. It doesn't get the funding necessarily that it deserves. But it is an opportunity in a world in which we don't have promotion relegation and that type of uh, competitive or that type of competitive movement up and down. You know, this is an opportunity for those Cinderella stories. This is an opportunity for leagues that, while maybe they are, you know, uh, in name Division Two, II, Division Three, you know, they feel they want to pump you know, pump themselves up and and push their chest out and bang on their chest and say, hey, we are here. We need to be noticed. And this is a wonderful opportunity. And we see it year after year after year. And I know there's usual suspects and teams like MLS with the amount of talent that they have and the money that they spend have a, 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 an advantage. But, you know, for example, uh, you know, the uh, the Loons game uh, against Detroit City FC is, is going to be in Detroit, right? Yep. So that in and of itself is wonderful. And I know there is some romance to it uh, and some nostalgia to it. But I think that that's that's part of the excitement and the allure of this particular tournament. And you mentioned all the other tournaments that are going on. You know, a soccer player in 2023 is going to play a lot of different types of tournaments and a lot of different types of games. And you got to be able to navigate that as a player and as a coach. And so, you know, that's important. But this is an opportunity to win silverware for whether it's a MLS team or USL team or any of the teams that are involved. Uh, this is an opportunity to win silverware. It's got the carrot of uh, playing internationally in terms of CCL, another tournament, by the way, that you can that you can get into. And then obviously the prestige and, and the history. And you need to look no, no further than someone like Detroit City FC having beat MLS teams in the past, by the way, at Kenworth in Detroit at their home venue. So this is not going to be easy. It never is. It is for some of these teams, their biggest game in terms of making a statement for the individual players it's a storefront window type of situation because i think i think the back and forth between mls and usl is going to increase going forward we don't see a lot of it but i think it's going to increase going forward because there's a lot of talent there and if you can mine that and you can you know find ways to do that and go back and back and forth the the opposite direction i think there's a business to be had there that's only going to get better 
Well, when you talk about Detroit City FC, and we should hit on the hit on it, your history and your connection with them. Can you elaborate a little bit? You know, I were doing it before I started recording here, but sure. being a Detroit native and sort of what your connection is with Detroit City and why you chose to get involved. So I grew up in Detroit. Uh, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Detroit and playing in, you know, youth soccer and travel teams and orange peels and juice boxes at halftime. <laughs> so it, it is my home city. I have, uh, you know, it, it even though I live in Los Angeles, Detroit always lives inside you, the, the good and the bad. And when it comes to the good, you know, what Detroit City FC has done has been wonderful for the city, for the community and for the sport. And, you know, it started out as a very, very small enterprise uh, and they've built it into this USL team and what they have done with the stadium, but also what they have done with the brand. And keep in mind that, you know, this is, uh, you know, one of the few, you know, soccer ventures uh, that that exist there. And so I wanted to support it. And so from afar, I was supporting it and watching the games and, you know, wearing the gear and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, they did this this whole cash call type of thing where they raised money and you were able to buy a piece of the club and actually be an owner. Now, I am absolutely a minority owner, along with a couple thousand other people uh, that are all right. I don't you know, make any of the rules and I don't make any of the decisions ultimately when it comes to Detroit City FC uh, on my own. Uh, and certainly we have input. But, you know, it's just a little piece of this team and therefore a piece of the city that I love so much and supporting a team that I know is doing good things and hopefully getting bigger and better each and every year on the field and the things that we do that they do, whether it's coming up against the loons or anybody else in in uh, in U.S. Uh, in uh, in the Open Cup or in the week to week type of experience that people have, uh, you know, Trevor James, the head coach right now. The Loons are coming up against the Detroit team right now that's struggling. It's not has not had a great beginning uh, to this season. So this might be a respite for the Detroit team to say, all right, let's put the league out of our, our mind right now and really concentrate on the uh, on the Open Cup. So they, you know, they're going to get an absolute game. And as I said before. MLS teams have gone into Detroit before and lost. And so it is it's an intimidating environment. It's a uh, you know, it's a wonderful environment. I think it's a very um you know, scaled back type of environment, but it's but it's incredibly um, colorful and exciting and passionate and discerning in terms of the fan base that they have there. And I think people are going to like it, you know, in this day and age where we have these beautiful stadiums and these brand new stadiums and the 20,000 types of scene, this is kind of a, a throwback. But in that, I think people will, I think the players will really appreciate the trip. Well, I know last year when Minnesota United played at Forward Madison, and you know, it's the same concept. It's this yep. awesome venue kind of plop down in some buildings. It doesn't seat the 20,000, but the vibe and the energy, and this is their moment to shine. And I'm not saying that in any sort of a negative light, but we all know what it's like to sort of be, and we've seen it year after year of these, these lower division teams, USL teams, whatever, however we want to phrase it, beat MLS teams time and time again. I mean, Union Omaha came here and beat Minnesota United last year. And, and Minnesota United ends up signing Ryan Jeeva, who played for Union Omaha. And now he's on the roster. So there is this opportunity. Adrian Heath loves to play underdog. But this is one of those moments he can't play <laughs> no. underdog. This is not This is the opportunity for Detroit City FC to go out and prove themselves and prove these guys to prove that they can play at this level with MLS caliber players and teams. And that's a motivation in and of itself. Yeah. And if you, you know, look, if you take Minnesota United, even with the money that they spend and the stars that they have, the talent that they have, the depth that they have, the resources that they have, you know, they should beat Detroit. Uh, but this is one game, right? So if, if they played 10 times, you know, I think Minnesota would would win the majority of them. But this is one game and anything can happen. And to your point, the motivation for the players is at an all time high in these types of games. And, you know, the motivation for recognition and credibility of the fan base, uh, you know, because this is the big bad MLS uh, and everything that that, you know, all the baggage that, that comes with. And, you know, there's there's context to this where MLS at a certain point a few years ago tried to come into Detroit and it didn't end up working out with the ownership and, you know, the fighting, the infighting that goes on between existing teams there. And if MLS is going to come in and all that. So all of that type of stuff bubbles to the surface when these types of games happen. And it's, and it makes for wonderful entertainment. Like you said, it makes for a wonderful, passionate type of environment for the players and the fans. And then there's all these other narratives and these stories and this drama that is kind of playing, playing up around this, uh, around the actual game. And it's just, it's fun to watch. I enjoy I enjoy the tournament uh, first and foremost, just watching it. And we're able to uh, we're able to watch it. But in any big tournament, 
you know, you love to see these Cinderella stories and you love to see the, uh, you know, the slayers of the uh, of the dragons and of the uh, of the big, powerful, all um, all encompassing types of teams when it comes to MLS. And right now, the big dogs are MLS and it doesn't always work out that way just because you spend more money, just because you have more talent on paper. When that whistle blows, as you know, things can change in a hurry. Well, we saw that with Austin, didn't we, earlier yep. this season? I mean, and that is why you play the game. I don't know. Was it Herm Edwards that said that back in the day? It's like a one. It's like a 16 beating a one in the NCAA tournament. I mean, the passion, the energy, the adrenaline, and that's why we love sports. It's because you truly never know what can happen. And I think that the the hype that will happen around this game, especially for Detroit City FC, and then for the MLS teams that are in this tournament facing these USL teams or whoever it might be is like, there's a real pressure there to come out and perform. And then what kind of a battle does that play in your head, even as a staff about what team you're playing, what competition you have, you know, coming up the next week in an MLS, what do you have the week before, you know, who do you put out there? I mean, there's all sorts of kind of strategy that go into it actually. It's also, you know, MLS players will have been spoiled in terms of the resources that they have, in terms of the places that they play, in terms of the travel, in terms of all of that kind of stuff. And you get and play in some of these places. And look, don't get me wrong, USL has some wonderful environments and some wonderful venues uh, and and wonderfully, uh, you know, luxurious types of uh, situations. But it's not necessarily on the level of some of these places when it comes to MLS. And so you get into these places. I mean, you're going to go to Hamtramck, uh, Michigan, and you're going to play in this, uh, you know, this refurbished stadium. And then they've done a wonderful, wonderful job, but it's not going to be like playing in a lot of the MLS stadiums. And I'm sure there will be complaints about, oh, you know, this is, you know, the field's like this and it's, it's not the greatest surface and, and this and that, but that's part of the magic. That is part of what you are up against. And it's also part of, you know, a lot of times in MLS, we talk about parity and manufactured parity. Well, within this tournament, I love the fact that, you know, the home teams, if they're, if their stadium lives up to a certain standard are able to host the games, if they want to host the games, because there's a financial benefit that they get, you know, but there's also the cachet of hosting you know, this this big bad MLS team and off of cases that is coming into your market and you get to host them and you get to show them the, uh, your type of experience. And if you use it to your advantage, it can be that proverbial 12th, uh, 12th man. Uh, and and if that and if it ends up happening, you know, whether it's the fans or whether it's the environment that you create, it's just it's really fun to see. And again, it goes back to what I said about the incredible history that has existed over 100 years, but also that exists right now. And we focus a lot of times so much on what's happening with MLS, but there is incredible things that are going on on and off the field when it comes to professional soccer with all of the leagues and whether it's USL or NWSL or, you know, all the different uh, acronyms that we have out there and all of the different leagues out there. It's professional soccer. It's not for the faint of heart and it's difficult, but, you know, these are men and women each and every day that are working to make it better within their community communities, within their cities uh, and provide an environment that people want to pay money in terms of going to see soccer. And I'm all for that. Well, and before we switch gears to uh, two teams that do have all the resources available to them in the men's and women's national team, talk about the growth of this game in this country. We just talked about specifically USL and PSL. I mean, we could go mm -hmm. down, as you said, the list of acronyms, USL one, two, you know, all these different things, but since you've been around this sport and in this country, even just the growth of MLS and we WUSA, I mean, all, WPS, sure. all the women's professional leagues that have transcended and, and changed over time. What do you make of where this is at right now? And could you ever have imagined that this is the the evolution that it's made? I mean, look, I I I played before we were born back in the 1900s. I was running around <laughs> this, you know, this crazy Wild West uh stark barren wasteland that was american soccer and i mean look i i used to come up to uh, blaine minnesota yes. right to you know yes. and and play in tournaments there and do all that kind of stuff um and but there were just little pockets and those pockets have multiplied and the 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 landscape today as i sit here on tuesday april 18th 2023 talking to you is just dramatically different than what I grew up in. And I, I love it. I love that there is a generation right now that gets up each and every day and they have all of these incredible stadiums. They have all these leagues. They're able to watch every league and every team on television uh, just with the click of a button. They have incredible coaching. They have, um, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure available to, I mean, we're sending players now to Europe 
that haven't even played a minute yet in MLS. That's how, you know, the, the scouting network that's, uh, that's going, all that kind of stuff didn't exist back when I was uh, running around. So that warms the cockles of my redheaded American heart to see how far we have come in a really relatively short period of time. And I know we kick ourselves often for what we haven't done or what we aren't. But we also have to pat ourselves on the back for how far we have come in a really relatively a really short period of time. And we've made incredible strides. Now, you don't you don't rest on your laurels and you recognize that there's still plenty of problems. Uh, it's certainly not perfect. It is it is la cosa nostra. It is our thing. Warts and all. And we got to continue to to get better. But it, as the, as the saying goes, you come a long way, baby. And American soccer has. And it. And it's really interesting and unique and distinct. And, you know, look, whether it's up there in Minnesota, uh, there, there, there are American soccer fans that look at the world and look at themselves through the lens of soccer and the way that they talk, the way that they dress, the way that they act, the way that they see themselves, like I said, the way they see the world, the way they see their community is informed by soccer. And that's, that is awesome. And it's all above ground. It's not niche. It's not underground. And as I said, I think the American soccer fan is the most passionate, uh, is the most educated, and is the most discerning out of necessity because we have had to be <laughs> because we have all of this bombarding coming in from all around the world while we're creating this wonderfully unique version of the game. And don't ever apologize for what we are or what we aren't. And certainly just don't apologize for American soccer. Uh, and not that you do or, uh, or anybody necessarily listening does, but I have heard it before. Yeah, we're different. Yeah, we're unique. We have taken this beautiful game that the world plays and we have made our own version version of it, but we haven't bastardized it. All right. We haven't, you know, done things to it that make it unrecognizable other than it's it's American. And I love the fact that we have done that. We've Americanized our version of the beautiful game here. And I think we've created something really unique. Yeah. And you've literally took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say it's more just being unapologetically you, which is so funny because we preach that to all these generations now. And I always tell my daughter that, you know, with all the pressures and the outside things in the world, like, but really that's what the soccer landscape is too. It's like, you don't have to apologize for what we are. It's a different version. And we don't have to try to be something that we're not. It doesn't mean you can't strive to make advances in certain areas of the popularity of the game and the quality of the competition and the stadiums and the fan base and all that kind of stuff. You want to grow the game. We all do. But don't apologize for what you are, and you can always strive to be better. Like, I think that's sort of a, a good way to just summarize what American soccer is now. Yeah, and I think it it, it comes, it, you know, it stems from this this insecurity that we have and this inferiority complex that, that we talk about. And I, I think it's understandable. I think it's, it's human nature, especially in a country and culture where soccer isn't king, right? So I was talking with someone last night at dinner about, again, way back in the 1900s when I was running around <laughs> and, and how different it was and how you know, we were we were looked down on as soccer people and soccer players. And that's that's not the case anymore. I have a 14 year old and a 17 year old and they look at soccer like any other sport. It is just part of their sports palette. And, you know, they you know, the the FIFA game changed the game, literally changed the game in terms of uh, you know the video video game and the way that people think about it. Obviously, you know, the, the amount of TV and the amount of streaming that you're able to uh, to watch, you know, a, a young person today, you know, has has the uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, their their football team, American football team, and then you know, they'll go and they'll watch Chelsea play and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll know Messi and they'll, all this kind of stuff. And that. That's a that's a marked change. And then they have their domestic affiliations and all that kind of stuff. And I love, you know, I love that we've come so far. And I also love that there are kids that wake up today and have no idea how different it was. And, yeah, how challenging (laughs) and bad it was. And it does. It's not that long when you really look at it, but they they have no concept. And I don't need them to. you know, say thank you or anything like that. But a lot of people, including yourself and so many others, men and women have worked very, very hard to get us where we are with all of those different wonderful advantages uh, that we have. And that's great. That for me is that success, that there is a generation right now that has it so much better than we ever did. And, you know, I think that that applies to parents out there. You, you want your kids to have it better than you did and do the things to make it better. And I think from a soccer perspective, a lot of us can be incredibly proud that we have done that. And it's got to continue on because you got to instill that and plant that seed in that next generation that, hey, now it's your responsibility to take it to the next level. 
Well, speaking of not, you know, it wasn't that long ago type of moments. And I think, you know, one of your favorite people on the planet is JP Della Camera. Yeah. I remember him talking about, I believe it was the 99 in the Rose Bowl sold out and him calling that women's national team game. And it was on tape delay. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even, it wasn't even shown live. And then now we have this women's world cup this summer coming up, you know, dual countries in New Zealand and Australia, um, which I know you'll be a part of, but like you talk about the advancement of all of soccer, let alone the women's game. What do you just give me like a, your snippet of a preview of the women's world cup. And I know you had Allie Wagner sure. on the other day and she's got all sorts of fabulous things going on, but what's your sort of snippet of the upcoming women's world cup and where the U S women sort of sit in their usual dominance, but maybe not so much anymore with everybody catching. Right. Up. I mean, look, men's women's co-ed naked doesn't matter. I'm going to talk about it. I'm there. And I love it. I, I, you know, and world cups I've done so many now and I just, I love it. And again, it doesn't matter whether it's men's or women's. So this summer, obviously we're going down to Australia and New Zealand. And so I'm jacked up for it for a number of different reasons, not the least of which our, our women's team gets the opportunity to go for three world cups in a row, something that has never been done unprecedented men's or women's. And, you know, they just continue to make history and do big, bold things on and off the field. Let's be, uh, let's be honest and incredible superstars uh, on and off, uh, on and off the field. But, you know, from a bigger per, uh, perspective, this is also going to be the biggest World Cup with 32 teams. And so you have, deb, you know, uh, debutants all over the board uh, coming do in. You love, do you love those? Do you love that or not? Like, I love I, the expansion of it, yeah. for sure, in the women's game, the energy from these teams that never, you know, otherwise never would have made it. I love that. It, it is. And, you know, while you look, you're going to get some lopsided results. And that's just kind of the price you have to pay. But it, it, it you are rewarded and the long-term benefit of having these individual players and these teams and these countries celebrate their team at a World Cup. I mean, you know, we remember, you know, the, the uh, you know, the Thailand result from last World Cup or even, you know, the uh, Panama in the in the a couple World Cups ago. That moment when they when you put your hand over your heart and you're wearing that jersey and you're walking out on the field and the camera shows your team, if you're not on the team, if you're just watching it at home or if you're in the stadium and you're representing your country. And, you know, tears are streeping now people's eyes. It doesn't matter ultimately about the score. Yes, it's a, com a competition. So I, I, I'm all for it. I love it. I hope because I hope what it does is it plants that seed and it gives not just the individual players that experience, but it brings it home to say, hey, this is something that is worthy of your time and ultimately is worthy of the resources being put into it. Because as you know, when it comes to the U.S., Many, many years ago, many decades ago, we focused and made it a priority so much so that we had legislation and we made women's sports uh, a priority and did the things to, to give it the uh, the equity and the uh, and the equality that it deserves. And we reaped the benefits for a number of decades in a number of different sports. But but in particular, when it comes to the women's game in soccer and the rest of the world has started to catch up. And even with just minimal amount of resources, you can make incredible strides. But the reality is even today, there's a handful of teams that the U.S. actually is competitive against. And it's not that they can't lose on the day, but the reality is that you know, you're talking about your France, your England, your Germany's, um, you know, uh, when it comes to yeah, Canada, the def defending uh, uh, Olympic champions. So it's, it's the usual suspects over, uh, around and for Vladko Andonovsky, the head coach of the women's team, you know, this is this is pressure because it's it's almost not fair. If you don't win it, it's it's kind of a failure, right? And yes, and you know, it's 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 not easy. But he's also, I mean, he's got the keys to you know the the best and fastest car in the race. And so it's up to him to make sure that it drives and it purrs and it does what it needs to do. And you know, we saw the loss of uh, of Mal Swanson there. You know, that's that's a problem, but they got incredible depth. And, you know, next woman up and Trinity Rodman and Sophia Smith and all these, you know, these two types of players. So I'm excited about it. I can't wait to go down there. Our our set's going to be right down in uh, in Sydney, right in front of the Opera House and the Botanical Gardens and all that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll have that iconic thing. And again, we'll rev it up. We did it a couple weeks, uh, a couple months ago in Qatar. And, you know, Fox will give you your day in, day out dose of uh, not just the U.S. team, but everything that's going on with this expanded. And therefore, I think uh, I think it's going to be the greatest women's world cup you've ever seen. What's the favorite part of your job? Just to wrap up the, this segment of the show, what's the favorite part of your and I don't even know if I can call sure. it a job. And that's what I tell people, yeah, I know. The time, you know, it, when you get to do what you get to do, like it's these it's are, kind of like a privilege, you know, I, I am incredibly privileged. Don't think for a second that uh, that I don't know how privileged that I am and they can 
they can, you know, pry it out of my cold, dead, redheaded hands. Okay. <laughs> well, and they're coming, believe me. Coming they're all coming. They're, they're all coming. All you youngins are coming. So, <laughs> so bring it, bring it. But I mean, the, the, the best part of my job is that I get to talk about soccer. I haven't kicked the ball now in decades and I still make a living talking about the game that I love. The moment that I love the most is right before that red light turns on. And, you know, I'm, I'm on television and anything can happen on live television. And <laughs> I love, you know, I still get butterflies in the best sense. Uh, I've learned to harness those and and use them to my advantage. And I don't feel that I'm prepared or ready if I don't get those butterflies. And then off we go. And, you know, talking about the game and mixing it up and debating and opinions and all that kind of stuff. We don't have enough of that when it comes to the men's or women's side uh, when it comes to our game. So the more that we can do that, the best. And people are going to agree with you. People aren't. People are going to call you names. And, you know, in this day and age where everybody has a platform, everybody has a megaphone. That's fine. Bring it on. That's fine. You know, I mean, I get called things to my face and online and behind my back and in texts and in emails and back in the, you know, walking down the street or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it comes with the gig. But I, I love it. And I'm so, like I said, incredibly lucky and and fortunate to be able to have this gig and uh, I want to keep doing it and I can get better I, I certainly have grown and gotten better but I still make mistakes and I can certainly do better well I always say like you know you think after you do it for a while you're like gosh why am I still sweating you know like right before the camera goes on why am I sweating but I'm always kind of like that must be part of it though it's that adrenaline it's that excitement it's that it's that positive nervousness, you know, like when you're when you said like that red light goes on and the ball's about to kick off and you're doing the the first thing, whether it's calling a game or whether it's the studio stuff, like I feel like that's a positive energy. Like the day I'm not sweating anymore when when the whistle blows, it's a negative. Well, I, you know, I know I know you're a junkie for it and I know that you love it. And I you know, I I love working with people that are like that, because something you also know if, if you're in this industry for any period of time is that you'll see people that are just coming through and they're just they're passing through they're using it as a way station until something better comes along and okay you can get away with that for a little bit but eventually it will i think manifest itself in your performance and i think you're cheating yourself and i think you're cheating the viewer and i i don't want to be associated and around and, and working with people like that i want to be with people that are junkies that are love it that love it and this is what they want to do and what's really actually been heartening for me to see is that there's a whole nother generation that's coming up that looks at soccer and soccer broadcasting and soccer media and all that kind of stuff is that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's specifically what they want to do. And, you know, the, the late great Grant Wall, um, you know, was rightfully so this, this, you know, this icon and this, this pillar, and he did other sports, but you know, you know, he was kind of ahead of his time in that he really focused and wanted to be about soccer. And now I think he has influenced and a lot of people have influenced this whole generation to say, yeah, you know, there's American football and all that, but this is what I want to do. And, you know, I work with uh, and, and, you know, John Strong, he's another one that from an early age, he recognized that, yeah, I could, you know, get get more famous or I could make more money and I could do these other things. But this is what I want to do. And that to me, that that's the ideal working with people that are good at what they do uh, that want to get better and don't want to do anything else. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. Agreed. And I think, you know, the, you, you hit it on the head too, just saying like, it's you, I always feel like I owe it to the people, the mm -hmm. people that we're broadcasting to, to put everything into it. And you know, when you go into a game or you, it's just like as an athlete, like just like as a broadcast, if you maybe didn't feel like you prepped as well that week as you should have, or who knows life happens, things come up. But at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, giving the teams the re the respect that they deserve yeah. and making sure that you follow through on the broadcast and, and really diving in. And that's actually one of the other reasons I love the women's world cup is there is nothing I love more than those in-depth pieces and those stories and those things that you find out, especially about some of these countries where maybe some of those countries, they don't want women playing soccer. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, we're, we're talking about funding and some of these places trying to get cleats and jerseys and, you know, just the most basic things of just being able to play the game. And then they show up and they see that anthem and they hear it and like they get off the bus and they're jamming to the music and there's just an energy about it. And it truly is the sport that brings everybody together. And I think we saw that in Qatar and we're going to see it with New Zealand and, and Australia with the Women's World Cup as well. Can't wait. Uh, you know, I can't wait. And, you know, to your point, we will, you know, we, we will tell those stories, either in, in, either actually individual players or teams and the disparity is going to be very, very obvious. And look, uh, our, our women have fought 
tooth and nail and deserve everything that they uh, that they have gotten. But there, I think there's going to also be a, a a a stark contrast between everything and all the resources that our women have um, individually and collectively relative to some of these teams. And you know that's not a it's not saying that our women should you know pity them or anything like that. You, they've, they've done a lot of things to help bring everybody up, not the least of which is now we have a 32-team uh, Women's World Cup, and hopefully these types of things will force people to put more resources. But be careful, because we have had that head start. And, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, Kate Margrath over there at, the, at U.S. Soccer, she's got to be thinking every day, how do we maintain the distance? Um, because they're coming and they already have an existing infrastructure and they are coming oftentimes from cultures where soccer is king. And, you know, we've seen what's happened in England, in Italy, uh, sorry, in England, for example, or in Spain with these incredible crowds that they have. And, mm -hmm. you know, we saw a couple of weeks ago with that, with the baseball thing, people want to, people want to lean in and cheer and be proud of their country. The sport sometimes is irrelevant, you know, yeah. and especially in, a, in an age where so much divides us. This is something that brings people together. And so, you know, when it's the women's teams in some of these countries where traditionally they haven't gotten the resources or they've been ignored. I think there's a whole generation right now that says, this is my this is my team. And I want to I want to cheer for this team. And whether it's like I said, men's, women's or co-ed naked, people get into it. And so here's hoping that this World Cup has the effect of not only just being a great World Cup from a competitive standpoint, but also making all these teams in these countries realize that this is worth putting money into. And not because it's a charity, because that's, that, that is the kiss of death. Women's soccer cannot be treated as a charity, but because it's good business going forward. And we're seeing that when it comes to NWSL and so many other things uh, that are happening. Well, we'll wrap it there. We got another awesome game coming up. I know we kind of did full circle here, but Detroit City FC, Minnesota United, U.S. Open Cup, Tuesday the 25th in Detroit. I I, I urge you all to tune in because you know that's going to be an awesome game and everybody comes to play in those matches. So I thank you for taking the time to join me. And of course, just talk all things soccer, preview the Women's World Cup. I mean, we could go on for another couple hours, but I know you're probably doing 75 other podcasts today, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And like I said, I love uh, I love the work that you do, and I love that, that we've gotten to know each other and work with each other over the years. And uh, I wish you I wish you the best of luck going forward. My best to you, to all the uh, folks up there in uh, Minnesota and around the country, uh, and, of course, to your family. Awesome. Thanks, Alexi. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everybody, tune in next week after uh, Minnesota United takes on Seattle Sounders. And then, of course, maybe even after the U.S. Open Cup game against Detroit City FC. Thanks, everybody.